Hi everyone, this is Radim with another episode of my podcast on the people behind modern machine learning. Today I had a fairly technical chat with Leonid Boitsov, a researcher from the Carnegie Mellon University and expert in search and information retrieval. We talked about algorithms and libraries for large-scale approximate nearest neighbor search as used in recommendation engines. This episode was recorded on the 9th of March 2018. Enjoy! So hi everyone, with me is uh, Leo Boitsov, researcher from the Carnegie Mellon University. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Leo, the first time I heard about you was under the blog series that I wrote about approximate nearest neighbor search. So I wrote a few blog posts and we had a discussion there, which was really to my liking. Uh, we quickly went from discussing these high level concepts into caches and uh, sort of how CPUs work and how to do things with prefetching and so on, which is really what I love. So that's how you came into my attention as this sort of person who can run from the high level concepts all the way down to hardware, which is something that I'm really fond of. And we crossed our paths a few times since, and now you're sitting here with me, well, virtually, you're over the pond. And uh, let's discuss search, search technologies and uh, yourself and your research. Hello, Leo. Hi, hi, Radim. Thank you very much for inviting me, and thank you for the kind words. Yes, I, uh, I think that was how that was um, the right description of how we uh, uh, first met uh, in the virtual space. So, um, yeah, let's discuss the the search technology and whatever is related to the search technology. I, I'll be happy to chat about this. Yeah. By the way, that was like four years ago. Time flies, huh? So, would you say it's fair to say that, that search is your main interest and that you are interested in that theoretical and practical side? Did I summarize that well? Uh, I'd rather say it used to be. It's not exactly true anymore, but I somehow uh, got stuck a bit with this topic. You got stuck with it, all right. So maybe, you know, let's let's talk about the journey a little bit. This is an interesting development. So, Leo, how did you get to be involved with search? When I say young Leo and search, what, what comes to mind? Well, my degree was uh, applied math and uh, software engineering. So I got started as a software developing, developer uh, working, you know, on, I, I would say, rather boring jobs, some finance, infrastructure, but at uh, with time, I, uh, you know, get involved with algorithms because that was obviously more interesting topic. And at that time, my interest grew in uh, retrieval algorithms, and that's. Mm-hmm. So this this was your your choice. So it was not something that you studied at university. This this grew out of your let's say engineering and infrastructure jobs. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a good question, and and that's in, in fact pretty accurate. So somebody basically at some point somebody asks, uh, you know, there was a problem, search related problem that kind of popped up as a challenge that people discussed, and you know, I started thinking about this, and uh, that's how I got involved. Uh, because you know, it's it, this this problem is complicated, so you can you know. Uh, they sometimes like they they look simple, but in fact there are a lot of things involved, and that's how I started. I started to study these algorithms and uh, let's introduce the space a little bit. So when we say search, what do we mean? What were these initial problems that piqued your interest? 
Right. So that was actually um, an, an approximate slash fuzzy search problem when you have a string and you have to find, uh, say, another string uh, which is at most, uh, which is similar to a given string, but it can be different. And, and for example, it can have some missing letter or an extra letter, or a wrong letter, and uh, what we formally would we say we want to find string within a certain Levenstein distance. Uh, that was an interesting problem that actually sparked my interest in search algorithms. And was this for the purposes of spelling correction, or what was the application? It certainly can be used for spelling correction, but it didn't. Uh, appear as a problem that we need to solve at work, but rather somebody, you know, mentioned this problem as an interview problem, and that's how it, it started. Mm. By the way, let me just add this point. This is still not a very well-solved problem, practically. Like, there's so many different algorithms and automata, Levenstein automata, and all sorts of tria structures and so on. But whenever we need, we come across this issue. We end up writing our own solution because it's either too inefficient or the libraries that are out there or it's too inflexible because it often happens that the error model you have for this type of search is, is not good enough it's not enough maybe to delete an insert character but you want to know well is it uh, on the keyboard are they next to each other that's a smaller type of error so that, that happens a lot or there's an entire syllable missing or if it's a long word people like to skip the end of the word so that's again is a different type of error so if you get into these intricacies and you want to do it efficiently it's still very it was unsolved or interesting when you started which i assume was like 14 15 years ago and it's still kind of the pain is still there even today i feel like there's a gap in the well certainly open source uh market for library like that right but i I, my feeling is that the gap is mostly on the modeling side so and uh, there are algorithms to solve this problem efficiently at least when you search uh, a word in a dictionary or in a small uh, in a small text collection Uh, but still uh, it's much more pain uh, because you don't know what your good similarity model is. And that's exactly what you mentioned. If, the, uh, if say, your search word doesn't match exactly uh, the word as it appears in the text, so what's the reason for this? Is it a misspelling? Is it because uh, it's a different uh, version of the word, say, British versus American spelling? Is it because a user miskeyed? Is it the user because doesn't remember well or oh, it sometimes it can look as as a right word but i mean it can be a word in the dictionary but it's still wrong because uh well the right number of examples uh, so it's still wrong in the context um yeah so yeah the spelling correction is a first that's i think that's the first time that i i got acquainted with this space was actually at Cessnam where we developed spelling correction for for search queries and like you say, the context is relevant and the error model has to be a little more nuanced, right. especially for languages like Czech, because uh, Cessna was competing with Google, uh, Google that upstart company back then. <laughs> but Cessna had the majority of the market share, so we were developing all sorts of interesting functionalities. And yeah, it's, it's an exciting space. I can sort of commiserate uh, or have memories from that period now Leo also when we talk about search there's also that search which is very popular now with the rise of machine learning we have everything is a vector essentially images are vectors and 
texts are vectors and words are vectors and so on. So there's a lot of demand for searching for similar vectors. And that's a space where you really establish their expertise. Um, uh, maybe let's introduce this space a little bit. And you also created the library called NMSLib. Um, so I want to hear a lot about that. But first, maybe how would you set the context for these type of searches? What are the applications? How did you get into this domain? And what, what possible searches are there, like the vector, the metric, non-metric? Um, okay, that's, that's certainly an interesting topic. And uh, as I mentioned, I, my interest uh, in algorithms started from this search problem where we have uh, a search word or a pattern and you need to find other similar words. And I would say that the problem when you have a vector is not uh, different in principle because you also have, uh, you have uh, a set of objects. In, in this case, we're talking mostly about vectors because vectors are obviously a very convenient object to use and uh, vectors usually with uh, uh, like dense vectors of fixed dimensionality. And you have a query vector and you have uh, uh, vectors that are in the collection. And one problem that we often uh, have to solve is to find a nearest neighbor or a few nearest neighbors of the query vector in that collection. And that has been also a very difficult uh, problem to solve. And unlike actually the, the that other problem that I started to work on, I don't think uh, we have really good algorithms and it's probably not, uh, in general, uh, it's not possible to solve more efficiently rather than doing a brute force comparison between the query vector and uh, every... Are you are you referring to the curse of dimensionality? Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, good that you brought this up. So we know that in some cases that we can uh, solve this problem efficiently, but in the general case, that the data may be so bad that the sequential search solution is probably the only practical option. But from the theoretical standpoint, we don't know this for sure. It's not. It's not a uh, it's not a proven uh, fact, but that's kind of our feeling that comes from the experience working with high dimensional data. Hmm. So, for people who don't understand, like what are we? Why is it difficult? What are we talking about? Maybe they, you know, everybody uses a lot. When you say search, it's Lucene, Elasticsearch, these type of libraries people are familiar with. So, how would you answer if somebody says, "Well, why don't you just Elasticsearch? Like, what's the problem there?" Uh, the problem is that it's a different type of a problem. And uh, so we uh, were talking about looking for similar vector of fixed dimensionality and uh, the so-called dense vectors. And when we're talking about the text search, we use a different type of index. And uh, we basically memorize where we create a vocabulary of all unique words uh, that appear in documents. And then we memorize for each vocabulary word where it appears in text. And this data structure is, is, is called an inverted file, inverted index, and there is sparsity. So although uh, you have a lot of words, but if you uh, say uh, for a given, you, you can actually represent each document and each uh, query as a vector. But these vectors compared like to the, and each word will be basically 
the what, dimensionality of your vector, but your dimensionality can be huge millions of uh, dimensions. But for a given query and uh, document vector, it's it, they are all very sparse, right? And so basically, the sparsity of this problem allows you to uh, solve this problem efficiently in some cases. But actually not in all the cases, because if you have, for example, very long queries, it still becomes uh, a difficult uh, difficult problem. And actually, in for sufficiently long query, I believe that uh, the only actually efficient solution is, is going through that uh, and comparing it basically against every document. A little note on brute force here. So what you're saying, this sort of linear scan, it's also called brute force. And people like to say that it's bad, and it kind of is bad. So you can view this as you have the query, and then you have a one million objects, and you ask how similar is this query to the first object, to the second object, to object number one million. So as you can imagine, it's a lot of sort of work that needs to be done, uh, which is kind of slow. But at the same time, the work is kind of linear, and it's kind of straightforward. And that's what machines are really good at. Like if you have a lot of data, but you go through it from left to right, it's it's all sort of pre-cached and it's kind of streamed. This is exactly what all the caches are, are optimized to do. So it's very slow. It has linear complexity, but it, at the same time, it has very low constant. So it can be actually pretty fast. And if uh, if you have an, a very fancy algorithm that is maybe has theoretical complexity that is faster, but has very high con constants, then it's quite possible that on realistic data sets, it actually performs worse. This is something that I don't hear mentioned often. And I started by saying I did a sort of block series comparing the various uh, implementations of search and so on. And brute force search was beating, I would say, many of them. There were just a few exceptions like Annoy and, and a few others. But brute force is a, it's a good baseline, is what I'm saying. It is. It is. I absolutely agree with you. And uh, maybe we, I, I would suggest maybe we could say a few words about the curse of dimensionality because people uh, don't realize how uh, difficult it, it it makes the search problem. So what do you think? Yeah, sure, go ahead. So and, and regarding the curse of dimensionality, so most most of our intuition, it comes from the, um, say, a 3D, three-dimensional or two-dimensional world. And uh, search problems in 3D or 2D are very kind of easy and one approach that we typically use is divide and conquer approach for example uh, we can say if you need to search in the room you divide it into two parts and you can search basically uh, each part of the room separately and you can subdivide it right but the thing is that uh, this approach with hierarchical division of the space doesn't work well in uh, uh, high dimensional space and the reason is that because High dimensional space is 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 quite empty. It's uh, for example, if you have say, uh, imagine you have a ten dimensional cube, right? And you divide each side into two parts. So you basically uh, the number of parts that your cube is divided, it's two to the power of ten. But say if you have a one hundred dimensional cube, so if you yeah, coming back, uh, making one step back, sorry. So you divide it into basically 1,000 parts. And if your, say, data points are spread uniformly, then the probability that each cube has a data point is, well, roughly 1,000. But if you have 100 dimensions, right, then 
the number of partition is two to the power of 100. So basically, if you take any specific cube, the probability that you would find something there is nearly zero, right? And that makes uh, search very difficult, and it makes it really hard to beat the brute force search. And in fact, uh, I think we don't have any good uh, exact search method that we use uh, for high-dimensional problems, we do have to resort to approximate search. Yeah, so this is quite abstract. So hopefully people listening along uh, have some some background, but this is probably better done with a pen and paper, these sort of explanations. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's not an easy problem, the, the search. That's why there's so many libraries and so much research. Actually, over several decades now, it's, it's been known that it's curse of dimensionality is a is an annoying thing, pain in the ass. So people have been trying for a long time. And that's why I did my series, like checking, okay, so much research went into this. And now we have an application. Let's say we have songs and we represent represent them by uh, vectors. How do we find similar songs? So I wanted to see if this, out of all this research, there are practical libraries that came out. And the answer was, ah, uh, maybe one and a half library <laughs> that was actually usable, which was annoyed, by the way. Um, so it was kind of sad, um, the, the, the conclusion of my... But that was four years ago, and a lot of things have changed since. And one of the things that changed is, is actually your library in this space, which I want to chat about a little bit. It's called NMSLib. Um, Leo, what's, what does this stand for, and what does it do? Yeah, uh, sure. So, well, for one thing, that library uh, that I co-created, it's in fact, has contribution of several people and the most efficient part that actually excites people most it uh, it was uh, the contribution called hierarchical navigable small world that uh, was contributed by my colleague uh, Yuri Malkov it wasn't me uh, although I did help it a bit to happen and that library uh, never uh, wasn't, we never anticipated having anything like this when we started. And the goal was uh, somewhat different. We wanted to come up with uh, a set of benchmarks for searching in the so-called non-metric spaces. Um, so what is like a non-metric space? So we usually deal with uh, metric spaces mostly with the Euclidean space, right? So our space around us is the Euclidean, and it has like you know well-known properties that we are most importantly it's it's a metric space and it has the structure of the vector space. But there are weird spaces. I'm not going into details uh, of this as of now, so not. To be too abstract, but there are things that are not that not not Euclidean. For example, it can be still a vector, but the distance will be computed using a strange thing called Kale diversions, which I'm sure some people uh, are familiar with. And that's how it started. And we had a solution for again low dimensional, relatively low dimensional space. And uh, my. Uh, Another quarter of Billick Naidan, he has also some uh, collections of benchmarks. We wanted to publish a paper on the new method, and we realized we didn't have any benchmarks yet. Uh, so we had to take uh, Billick's code and uh, beat it into something that uh, was, uh, you know, kind of a library that other people would be able to use. 
Yeah, when was this? When did it come about? It was 2012-2013. It was quite a few years ago. It feels like a lot of people had the same pain around that time because that's when annoy. I keep saying annoy. I shouldn't. So that's a library by Spotify, by Eric Bernhardson in particular, the mm-hmm. main contributor. And a lot of people around that time started having the same issue. And that's also why I did the, the, the series. Like You represent right. songs as whatever, 300-dimensional vectors or documents, and you want to find similar documents. It, that use case comes up a lot, and it feels like a lot of people sort of converged. There was a confluence of people having pain of, oh, does this actually work, and how, how well does it work? And uh, a lot of work was done in that area. Leo, when you say, when you mentioned this, this popular uh, algorithm, the, what was it? Hierarchical navigable small world. What's the idea behind that? What's, how is it different to, let's say, what annoyed us with projections? Okay. Uh, I cannot explain it without being a bit abstract, but the algorithm that's, and that was a later contribution, uh, to our library. So that algorithm is, belongs to new type of, well, a relatively new type of, old new type of algorithm that was in fact discovered like 20, 30 years ago, but it, it wasn't used for a while. And I'll explain why a, a bit later. So, and this algorithm actually relies on an apparently uh, simple idea of organizing the search space. So, as I mentioned previously, in low-dimensional space, you can do a hierarchical division of the space, like divide into two parts. Each part is divided, say, in recursively in, in other two parts, and so on and so forth. But it doesn't work well in high-dimensional space. And uh, the method that works better is to uh, take a data point and find nearest few nearest neighbors of this data point and you take these nearest data points and connect them with edges so basically you have a graph where each data point is a node a vertex and uh, these vertices are connected to the neighboring vertices so that's really simple idea but the reason why it wasn't popular because it's not clear how to construct these graphs efficiently. Mm-hmm. So that's something that your colleague solved and it's part of NMS Leap? It is fair to say this. All right, exciting. And I'm curious, what sort of applications have you seen for your library? First of all, with what kind of people use it? And second, how? In what capacity? I think it's mostly people who are uh, who, need, who have a need uh, for retrieval of vectors. As, as you mentioned, if you represent songs as vectors and you want to find uh, similar songs, that's there you go. You would use a library like this. Hmm. Leo, when you say, I think, uh, does this mean, do you track this in any way? Do, uh, how do you know about your audience? Uh, it's a good question because I do not track my audience directly. I know Annoy was used by uh, people from exactly the music industry, so to speak. So I know I was used as a part of recommender engine by Spotify. So -hmm. that's one thing uh, we know. I know also that uh, I don't, although I don't track some of the users, uh, I know that people uh, want to come over. Another popular way uh, of applying it is currently we have, uh, we are obsessed with computing 
the so-called uh, embeddings for for everything. So well, basically, a way of uh, we want to represent. We use some deep or not so deep learning algorithms to create a vectorial representation of an object in our database. It can be song, it can be word, it can be a document, and then use uh, these documents to find similar similar documents. All right. So you present the library, but you don't really track how in how concretely people use it. By the way, that response it kind of reminded me of a charming exchange we had on Twitter. So another thing you do is integer compression. I saw a tweet um, from you when was it a few months back that you made some library and it has a Python interface. And I was thinking, oh, Leo made something new. Um, time to pay attention because you really are good at the, making it actually practical and putting the engineering chops into it. So I looked and I couldn't see on GitHub. I couldn't see what does it actually, how would I use it? Who is this for? And I asked you and your response was uh, <laughs> quite memorable. You said, well, it's for anybody who needs integer compression. And I, I don't mean it in a bad way, but it was such a charming academic response. <laughs> uh, whoever needs it, needs it. Um, uh, that's uh, what I'm saying is these libraries are useful in lots of different ways. And by the way, we also evaluate, evaluated NMS Leap uh, along with Enoy. And there's another library by Facebook. What do they call it? Face, Face. I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, so they're all interesting and they're used in different ways. But maybe can you... Tell me, Leo, a little bit, what are the differences? How do you see the differences between these maybe competing libraries like Annoy, NMS Leap, Vice, Flan? There's a, there's a bunch of them now. Yeah, it's uh, the, there are differences. Uh, there are a few. Well, obviously, there are differences in algorithms. So the algorithms that he, Annoy uses, it actually does is based on hierarchical space decomposition, but it's not a single Decomposition, it's, it's multiple parallel decompositions, so I know it builds multiple trees. Uh, the face, it's another, so to speak, competing library from Facebook that people are very excited recently. It allows you to search uh, on very large scale, and it's, it uses a different idea, which is basically clustering. And there you go with our library that uh, contains uh, various implementations, but most importantly of this uh, efficient graph-based search algorithm, HNSW. So these are all three different algorithms. Have you tried the, the Facebook's library? Uh, I didn't, but other people tried. So uh, HNSW, more efficient, but it comes at a price of a much, sometimes much larger index. So that's something that you cannot uh, compete against directly, and you probably want to adopt the approach of Facebook. But uh turns out that uh, HNSW-like methods are, although I do not directly, uh, cannot be direct replacement, say, of face and uh, the clustering-based approach behind face, but it can be used as a part of face. The reason is that because a face, when they do uh, clustering or quantization, they run like huge k-means. Basically, they need to uh, the way they quantize, they uh, run k-means algorithm and find, say come up with say 10 million clusters. And uh, it turns out that k-means can be uh, sped up by using nearest neighbor search algorithm. It's a sort of a chicken and egg. Huh? You're solving nearest neighbor search by clustering, which is solved by nearest neighbor search. 
Exactly. That's uh, that become recursive, right? <laughs> it's turtles. It's search all the way down. Yeah. Right. But uh, let me explain a little bit. So, well, as as uh, I am, I'm, I'm sure that uh, nearly everybody who listens to your podcast is is familiar with k-means, but maybe not uh, many people realize that. Uh, when you do k-means, an expensive step or potentially expensive step, when you you have to for every act, you do iteration, you say you computed new cluster centers, and you wanna what you wanna do, you wanna reassign each data point to the closest centers that which you updated previously, right? And this operation is cheap if you have ten clusters or one hundred clusters, but for an extreme type of clustering that could be useful for libraries like FACE, you want to really want to do it some point with 10 million clusters, or maybe even like with, say, 100 million clusters. And that's where it stops being efficient. So if you need to uh, reassign data point with respect to 10 million centers, you need to do uh, the KNN search on the set of uh, 10 million cluster centers. And as we mentioned previously, this brute force search can be, uh, although it is a competitive baseline, it can be quite expensive. So so the idea is to do it recursively? or Not exactly recursively, because then you would have to use the same search method for cluster centers. But uh, the way they, uh, they you can solve this, you can use it, you, you can either use GPU, that's coming back to your observation that brute force search can be uh, really efficient, especially if you use specialized hardware. But another option is actually to use a fast approximate uh, search algorithm like HNSW. And that's where, uh, that's where we can be useful for library like FACE. And in fact, uh, FACE now have, they actually have their own implementation of HNSW, which I don't know exactly <clears throat> details how they use it, but what I described is one possible implementation. So there are a few of these libraries. What would you say, when is a good point to use one versus, is there a clear winner? Should people use the Facebook one? What are the, let's say, relative, the axes along which they differ? You mentioned that NMS Leap may be larger indexes than compared to, to Face. Are there other um, considerations for people who just want to use it? They maybe don't want to understand how the clustering works internally. Just, I want to search, what do I use, so why not? That's a great question. So first of all, most libraries out there are only for uh, dense vector representation of fixed dimensionality. So if you have, uh, say, 100-dimensional vectors and uh, your space, uh, well, that's the first thing. That's they are for fixed uh, dimensionality vectors. And second, they are usually uh, for the Euclidean distance only. Uh, so if you're happy with these limitations, then and you have really a lot of data, then you probably have to use face. Currently, we do not support quantization, although I think we should in the future. But if you don't, if your uh, domain is not dense vectors, if you have sparse vectors or the distance is not Euclidean, basically, uh, except NMS sleep, you won't find a lot of implementations out there. And also that because of the nature of methods that we use, it's uh, the graph-based search algorithm, but we have a couple of others that can be also quite generic. These algorithms, they work sometimes quite well in non-Euclidean spaces, in non-metric spaces, and 
in spaces where you don't have vectors. It can be like really arbitrary things that for which you can only have only the distance function to compare it to objects, but you don't know what's under the hood. And that's again where uh, NMS Leap can shine. And if you uh, if you have the distance that can in similarity function that you want to implement, you can actually extend NMS Leap and add this distance and say use NSW to search using this distance. That's that's another point where we don't basically have competition for now. Right. That's a big one. Leo, what are your plans with NMS Leap? I certainly want to improve it further. First of all, it lacks somewhat on the engineering side and some like obvious things making it more stable, cleaning up the code. I actually want to come up with a leaner version of the library that has some sort of core set of methods and maybe having like all the experimental stuff, you know, on this side, you don't compile by default. And uh, as another engineering uh, improvement, I would like to have this for all the methods uh, that we use, like core methods, I want to be able to keep adding data points to the index so it's not the index is not static anymore and for some methods uh, can also support deletions. And that actually seems to be a pretty popular feature. So that kind of thing to be done with the kind of have a better engineered library. Uh, and then also some improvements as, 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 as soon as we are done with the engineering, we can actually think about improving things a little bit, but engineering needs to be done first. Leo, I saw your talk speaking of engineering. I really liked your talk at the Allen Institute. I, I saw it was recorded. Uh, by the way, the link will be uh, in the description. So I invite you to have a look because Leo really has such a pragmatic, I would say it's a refreshing look on a lot of these topics which can be abstract and a little bit obscure but um you, you have yeah. such <laughs> they can right but you have such a pragmatic look everything is ai hype now and everything is the best and great and revolutionary and world changing but in that talk when i watch you you just say okay so there's a there's a baseline like tfidf a method which is what 20 30 years old maybe more um no it goes all the way back to 60s i guess these these initial approaches yeah. and and you say, oh, that's actually a pretty good baseline. And a lot of these newer techniques, well, they work in some cases, but maybe not all the time. Or it's not straightforward. And it's really refreshing to hear a perspective like that. And I respect that a lot. People who are not into the hype and who actually do the hard work and do the benchmarks and are able to say, oh, well, all right, this was interesting, but not quite there. Um, is that a fair summary? Yeah, and by the way, glad you mentioned Alan uh, AI. If they they have their own question answering system. They work uh, on the problem of solving, I think, middle school, well, some grade school uh, science exams, and those are multiple choice questions. And they recently published a paper. They don't, they're not very, you know, happy about this, but basically. Most of the they, they get higher accuracy numbers, so I think they they get the right answer in like seventy percent of all cases. But as far as I remember, something like sixty percent of uh, performance it comes from the uh, retrieval. So basically, they they use Lucene to answer these questions, and that gives them most of their performance. They're not happy about this, but uh, the, the retrieval based methods, they provide an extremely difficult to beat baseline in the question answering domain. 
Is that why they invited you to talk about this? I, I only saw them just from the corner of my eye. I know they do some interesting open source work and like you say, they publish things, but I'm not terribly familiar with that institute. How did it come about your talk? You know, I was uh, applying for a job there. So that's how... Maybe that's a that's a good segue. <laughs> so what do you actually yeah. do, Leo? Because we, <laughs> we discussed a lot of search and a lot of technical stuff, let's say. But what is your day-to-day -day like? Well, where do you work? What do you research? All right. Thank you for asking. <laughs> yeah. So I have been doing my PhD studies for, for quite a while, actually, technically since 2012. I am nearly done. I defended my thesis. And the only thing to graduate, I need to submit a slightly uh, edited version of this. Uh, so I do work now. And uh, somewhat unexpectedly, I work for a company that does medical transcription. So I, I start working as a research scientist slash research uh, engineer in the special recognition domain. What does, what does medical transcription mean? To explain, let me uh, tell you, to understand, you need to know how doctors in the U.S. work. So when a doctor examines a patient, he or she needs to provide a special summary for the insurance. And that's super duper important because insurance uses this to decide how much it should pay for the treatment. Uh, so basically, doctors need to provide the communication. And so what they used to do, they used to scribble something to write some notes, but Doctors are not happy about this. They don't like this, and uh, they they spend a lot of time doing this. And there are companies that are providing uh, transcription services when the doctor can, you know, dictate something, and the program would recognize it and maybe post edit it, and then in this form it can be submitted to the insurance company. And for the record, the program may not necessarily do all this stuff. It does require some post processing by a human. So we're not at the point where, you know, we do track for doctors like fully automatically. So if I understand correctly, this is a sort of speech-to-text engine with post-processing? Right. So we have uh, people who work on speech recognition, people who work on NLU that does some formatting and post-processing. And also we are a service company, so we provide it, can, you know, service as a whole. So we have people who would take this automatically recognized transcript and post-edit them. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty difficult domain. Just We dabbled a little bit in this, um, transcribing not medical recordings, but sales calls. And it's it's the data is quite noisy. And despite all the hype happening, it's actually quite difficult to do sort of transcriptions that are meaningful to the degree that you can run some natural language processing on the output. Uh, it's very much still a hard problem. So I'm sure you have a lot of uh, work ahead of you. What specifically are you working on? Well, I'm getting mostly, mostly getting up to speed with uh, uh, this domain. It's actually a lot of uh, new information, as you may guess. So I would say that during my uh, studies, I was sufficiently prepared for this, but I wasn't specifically... Uh, uh, is working on speech so it's yeah but as in any job it is actually not as much about well in any you know practical job that is related to producing any real systems it's not as much about the speech itself as about how do i read this code <laughs> that was written previously by 
uh, other people and uh, you know it's it's a lot of reading of other people's code and uh, understanding how it works i would say the understanding is the big part when we get a new project it's the code well Sure, it's uh, you know we've been writing code for a long time as have you, so that's let's say a technical challenge. But actually understanding how the things fit together, what is the objective, what matters, what doesn't matter, that's the hard part. Because once you understand this, you can make more autonomous decisions. You don't have to always go to the subject matter experts or be lost asking for directions. You're sort of more autonomous, and as you become more more autonomous, you become more valuable because you can solve higher level tasks. So really understanding the business context, what is the objective, what what sort of not so interesting. So maybe don't pay attention to that. Uh, and this is this is more interesting. That's a that's a big part of it. Yeah. So good good luck with the medical domain. <laughs> it's a it's it's a tough one with all the regulations and all the stuff happening. You mentioned this this is getting up to speed. That's something I wanted to ask you about. There's this thing happening that I call the archive deluge, meaning there's so many articles, so many publications um, that are just getting out every day. It's an endless stream. What's your technique for keeping up to date with interesting news, interesting advances? That's a really good question. And I, I have to admit that I don't have a really good strategy. And uh, in the sense, it's not... Uh, so I know some people who are actually uh, subscribing subscribing to the say uh, to archive and uh, try to read all the interesting papers. I mostly do two things. Uh, I use Twitter, and that seems actually to be a great source of uh, interesting and uh, useful papers. And second, when I uh, but that's just you know to keep up with the trends. Uh, kind of, you know, have your staff to be distracted by. But uh, I think it's important. And another thing that when I'm doing, say, uh, some sort of targeting search, uh, so usually I, I have like a couple of seed papers and I follow, usually I just follow some uh, citations. So you find some really old, important paper and you find papers that cite this paper. And that seems to be a really useful uh source of information speaking of social media i also saw that you're quite active on quora is that something that you do as a sort of to help the community or do you find information there as well i do find information there as well and i follow people and people make really interesting uh really interesting comments and also talking about papers i recently for example i recently uh encountered uh, a paper that I wouldn't have found otherwise about Google's experiment with uh, training image recognizer on 300 million uh, weekly labeled images. So that one was really interesting. I found it on Quora. Yeah, that's a source that not many people use, like I myself am I'm not using it actively. So that's an interesting one. Do you also follow GitHub? Like... Um... These, these companies like Allen Institute and Facebook, they have these research groups and they, they like to open source things. Do you follow that as well, actively? All right. I do follow some a few people on GitHub, but not too many. It seems to be useful. You're right. But that's more about... Uh, so people, you know, that they star interesting repositories. And so if somebody stars their repository, I sometimes check 
what is this Ebola? Mm-hmm. It's interesting how these ways change how people track news and research. I feel like the, the old academic model is, is becoming a little bit, I don't know, out of fashion. Like the pendulum is swinging the other way. And not only in social sciences, which you know, that's, that, that's its own challenge with the turmoil happening there now about things not being reproducible and, and all the other things um, more politically uh, minded. But even in hard sciences, I feel like there's this open AI program and there's ResearchGate and all these tools that help researchers and there's archive, of course. Um, mm-hmm. Things are really, and online courses. I feel like the traditional model of, of learning in universities is, is being, um, well, let's say disrupted to use a much <laughs> overused word. I'm talking about tools for how people share knowledge, how people communicate what they learn, what they like, what they don't like, what should be done next. It feels like that whole space of what is interesting and what is important is kind of going in a parallel track compared to you go to university, you get a lecture and you read some papers. That that was kind of what we did, I assume, you as well, uh, when we were studying. But I feel that the generation who's getting into it now, they're doing it in a completely different way. The approach is very different. Do you feel that as well? I think I would somewhat agree with you. Uh, sorry, somewhat agree with you. For one thing, universities are actually changing at quite a fascinating pace. For example, what I know Carnegie Mellon University does now, and it wasn't done when I was there. So if you take a deep learning course, you know what you do? You would uh, you would have some Kaggle style uh, homework assignments. So the, basically what you do, you have to beat the baseline. And that's all basically through Kaggle. So universities, they do adopt all the, you know, not all, but many new and shiny tools uh, for education. It's not that university are kind of oblivious. And, uh, but I still don't get what sort of um, way of tracking literature is uh proposed by OpenAI. I know that uh, that, that Google's, uh, I think it's Google, maybe not Google, like the Distill Journal. Do you, do, do you read it? Yeah, sometimes when it's, I'm, I'm a bit like you. I, I don't really have time to track all the news actively. So I just, when something, it's like with love, you know, you let it go and if it's good, it comes back. So I kind of follow that principle. If there's some interesting article or research being done, I'll, I'll hear about it. So yeah, Distill, I read a few of those. I think that format is nice, but I don't know if I have anything else to say do you follow that closely i don't follow it closely but i have i have recently read um several papers uh there and particularly because they were related to speech and i find it is super useful because they don't uh in a way it's presented it's kind of nice review papers and i i i totally agree with uh founders of these journals that we have a lot of, uh, we have a deluge of information. That's what you mentioned before. So archive, archive and uh, all those things. And uh, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, but you don't need to read all these papers. You need to get the gist and you need to know basically what are the good baselines, right? And most of the stuff that's being published, it just doesn't work as we all know full well. So there you go, but there should be people who are doing this for you. And uh, the journals like Distill, the the blog posts and all the social media uh, entries where people try to summarize uh, different aspects of research, 
this uh, I think this is what new and wasn't available some say 20 years ago and I I really like it very much because it 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 uh, well first it increases connectivity so it's much easier to find relevant information when you start working on uh, an unfamiliar topic and it's also very useful because it summarizes different you know aspects that and we don't have time to read everything so yeah uh, that's that's part is great yeah leo with your with your rare combination i would call it rare combination of very good engineering skills like you mentioned you had a lot of software development background and infrastructure and so on but at the same time you have this quite high academic standards and knowledge um what is your sweet spot? What, what do you want to be working on in the future? So you're in this company now um, doing, well, what is your position officially? What do you do? Well, as I said, I'm, uh, so I'm a research scientist slash research engineer. So it's a yeah. combination of the two. Right, right. Well, you have, uh, you can't hire people to do speech rec who, who can't read uh, scientific papers. So we have a reading group, uh, after each major speech track conference, we actually go over a few most interesting papers. So talking about how do you track uh, research, it's it's easy, especially when you have uh, people like who are already familiar, who know what all these papers are interested in, these this are not. Right, and reading groups is not a good way to uh, get up to speed. So that's uh, that's an applied position, but you still have to you know know what's going on, and we do we do obviously it's it's also involves uh, some in-house research on uh, how to build this better speech recognition system. And again, I have to make a disclaimer: I just started, so I'm getting up to speed and learning things. Hmm. So is that your sweet spot, like the sort of applied position where you see what's what's going on and apply it to practical problems? Is that what you want to be doing? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I forgot to that. That was uh, I had actually to answer the question about what I what I want to do. Yes, I I say that's quite accurate, and I do wanna. I don't see myself as as a person doing theory, and that actually should has sailed anyway. But <laughs> uh, yeah, so but I'm actually quite excited about building things that, that work. And not just building things, but things that require some some cutting edge scientific knowledge. That's kinda what we opened with and I think we can kinda close with the same observation because that's the impression I got right from our first exchange. And it's <laughs> I feel the same way. This is something close to my heart. And the things you work on are really fundamental, like search and like whether it's the fuzzy search or the metric space or non-metric space search, that's not going anywhere. That's a topic that will be here for, for all. It's kind of like SVD, you know, singular value decomposition. Again, an old ancient statistical technique, but it's being rediscovered every few years that it's really useful in the form of PCA or whatever. Now the deep learning people are rediscovering that it's really useful to do <laughs> sort of uh, matrix factorization so it's making another yet another comeback and i feel search is in the same category it's a it's a fundamental tool that can always be improved and applied in different ways so it's a it's an exciting topic and applying it is is a big part of the excitement but okay i wish more people were interested in search but it's actually not as uh <laughs> 
at least it's my feeling that it's not as popular as you describe it. <laughs> All right, what makes you say that? I think it's it's fair to say that uh, retrieval and search has seen its best days. It's certainly going to be an important part of many systems, but people are much more excited about modeling now, and that's for a good reason. You can improve modeling by incorporating search, and you actually have to do this, but search is not going anywhere, so it's, it's, it, it will uh, be with us for quite a while, maybe forever, but it is probably more important to work on the modeling part now. And I'm actually myself also, well, trying to, well, it's fair to say that I, I'm changing my research direction. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm not, not terribly worried about search disappearing or becoming irrelevant. That's in, as long as information is here, and information is always here. Some people argue that's the actually core of what our universe is, is information. So as long as that's there, the search for information is always relevant as well. All right, Leo, let's wrap this up. So uh, best of luck with your change of direction and um, the new exciting ventures that you're taking now. Um, keep up the good work on the no nonsense pragmatic solutions. That's I think that's okay. that's that's much much needed and much appreciated. Um, I don't know how often you hear that, but there are really people who appreciate getting getting things done as opposed to just hyped. So best of luck with that, and uh, let's chat again. Yeah, and uh, well, in conclusion, I want to say that well, okay, we I personally used to say the word hype as well, but. It's not all hype, obviously. There is much more uh, great progress uh, than, than hype. But, yeah, the hype is obviously an irritating part. And uh, clearly we've made, uh, we, uh, me, <laughs> excluded, made uh, huge progress in computer vision, speech recognition, and uh, other things. But yeah, okay. that's an interesting question. To what degree is the hype necessary? Because it, it does bring funding and it does bring fresh people who just ride the hype wave and maybe they get stuck there doing something actually practical. So I'm not saying it's all bad. What I'm saying is that having the practical in the trenches perspective, like you do, listening to your talks and, and reading your papers, that's appreciated. I appreciate it for sure in the deluge. Well, I'm, I'm really happy uh, to hear this. And it's also a great point that, well, uh, how much hype do we need? <laughs> Probably some. <laughs> that's a good one. How much hype do we need? Yeah. Dreams move the world forward. That's for sure. You need to imagine it before you can do it. So it's a certain necessary component all right so let's end with that leo thank you very much for your time um good luck and you find the time let's let's delve maybe into other topics i feel like we barely scratched the surface thank you very much it was really great pleasure talking to you and i greatly appreciate your time thank you that's it for today thanks for tuning in i'm learning more every time i do this I really appreciate your feedback so I can make this a more enjoyable listening experience for you guys. Feel free to comment or subscribe at rare-technologies.com slash rrp. Thanks.